0: Well, good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. Grab a Bible, go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we'll be uh, in Romans 1. Um, But this sermon is a little bit different. This whole series is a little bit different than what we normally do. We usually work through books of the Bible. So we just finished Exodus. We're going to start Malachi as soon as this series is over, and then we're going to be in Philippians next year. And the reason we do that is that we believe that the Bible, all of it, is helpful, and all of it is needed, and that we often, if we just pick on our own, ask the questions we want to ask we miss things that the Bible needs to tell us, but we don't ask the right questions. It's, it's one of the reasons why you don't let elementary students pick the topics they're going to learn. It's because they won't pick the topics they need to learn. There'll be things that they would pick that they're interested in. Like if you let my third grade son choose what the school curriculum was, he would know a lot about dinosaurs and wrestlers and Pokemon, But he would never have been like, teach me math. He just wouldn't have asked for it. And we believe that that's how we would approach the Bible, that there are some questions that we ask that we're interested in, that we want to know answers on, but there's a lot that we should that we don't ask. But in this series, we're just taking a moment to say, look, our culture has a lot of training that it is giving us on sex and gender and sexuality that... Every single day, if you ride down the road and look at billboards, if you stand in line at a grocery store and glance at the magazines, if you watch your television or listen to the radio, you're going to be coached up on some amount of how you ought to think about sex and gender and sexuality. And we're taking some time to say, hey, what does the Bible say? Does it help us out? And can we get our footing? So uh, if you came in a little late and you smuggled in a fifth grader or down, I would encourage you, unless you want to have interesting conversations for the rest of the day, you may want to take them to Kid City. Um, that is up to you. But we are talking through what the Bible says about sex, and we're talking about what our culture says about sex. And so it just depends on where you are in those conversations as to where, uh, how, how much you want to be here this morning with those at that age. I've, that's probably covered it. All right. Here we go. Um, we have said so far in this series we've said we are created, image bearing, embodied, and distinct people made for complementary co rule with God. We took the first two weeks to try to flesh that out and say this is the way God designed us. And now we're going to take a moment to say where are we culturally? in our thought processes, what's going on around us. And so this sermon, even as this series is distinct, this sermon will be a little more distinct because we're going to talk a little bit about what the Bible says, but we're also going to try to take some time in the middle to define where we are culturally. But let's start with the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 28. We've read this uh, every week so far. It says, and God blessed them, that's humanity. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the first command that we see here given to humanity is to be fruitful and multiply. That, that part of this design of God that men and women would be complementary to one another is a reproductive design that we, for humanity to move forward, need one another. We need men and women to be able to reproduce, and that was part of the way God designed this, and that he built this and blessed it. Sex is not something that humanity discovered. It is something that God designed on purpose and blessed and made it the way he made it on purpose. Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25 says, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That verse 25, naked and not ashamed, we said, points to the fact that they existed in their own bodies comfortably. And that sin has broken that, that we no longer exist in our own bodies comfortably like we once did, but that God designed sex and sexuality and he blessed it and he brought them together and that they will come together and they will become one flesh and that's this picture of sex it's also this picture of reproduction that in children you have legitimately taken two sets of people two people and made one new person that is the image the united image of those two people who have come together that God did this on purpose Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, uh, recently passed away, but he says this. He says, In Genesis one God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So procreation is obviously a large part of God's design for sex. But he also made sex feel good. And the Song of Solomon is full of references to the rapturous pleasure found in a sexual relationship between man and wife. Sex and the pleasure that comes along with it are designed to reinforce the connection between a husband and wife, creating a stable bond for a family and a safe atmosphere to raise children. The pleasurable chemicals released during sex are meant to remind the participants of their wedding vows that they belong to and are attached to one another, that they mutually serve one another. If the covenant of marriage is that all of me belongs to all of you for all of our lives... Sex is meant to be a covenant renewal ceremony, a covenant remembering ceremony. It's meant to be that same thing that we're giving all of ourselves to one another. And that God designed it that way on purpose and made it enjoyable on purpose. Tim Keller goes on to say that this is one of the reasons why we, uh, when we enter into sexual relationships to people we aren't married to, it's one of the reasons why we stay in bad relationships longer than we should because we've been telling ourselves through our physical acts that we belong to each other in a covenantal way. And it's one of the reasons why when we break up, it hurts more than it should, because we've been enacting covenantal relational activities rather than keeping that where it's supposed to be. So one of the, the general um, views of the way Christians think about sex and sexuality is that we think it's dirty and bad and wrong, that the church teaches sex is dirty and bad and wrong, save it for your spouse. <laughs> that 's not the Christian teaching on this. We actually believe that sex is more beautiful and more powerful than our culture does, and therefore it ought to be guarded and ought to be in the right place and it 's to be celebrated and enjoyed in the right context we don 't agree with our culture that it is the the only way to have a happy life and the only way to to exist. The Bible celebrates celibacy and singleness as you are a full human. I know culturally. We're told if you, if you never had sex, you're only like a half a person, you don't really exist until you've done this, you don't really get to be a real person until then. That's not true. It is, it's a gift, but it's not ultimate. And you can see how if this is our approach to sexuality, we stand contrary to our culture. And, this, and our culture doesn't really like our position on sexuality, and this isn't new. This is uh, C.S. Lewis talking 80 years ago in, in a, a completely different continent. He writes this, chastity, that's this approach to sexuality, is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. He says that's Christians' approach to sexuality and people don't like that. He actually goes on to say it's difficult, so difficult and contrary to our instincts that either the Christian rule has to be wrong or we have to be wrong. And we've, we've made it worse because we've added either marriage between one man and one woman to further differentiate and clarify our position with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And if you're familiar, if you've been in the United States... For more than about 30 minutes you realize that's not the cultural approach and so we stand contrary to our culture when we say a thing that's not very popular and most cultures have rejected this approach to marriage because our approach to sex is wrong as C.S. Lewis would put it contrary to this ideal that God gives us but here's an interesting thing it used to be that as Christians held this position, the culture around us viewed us as more moral than them. That we were prudish or we were um, uh, too strict, but that this position was more moral. So they might would make fun of you or they might would exclude you from things, but they didn't see you as less moral. They saw you as more moral. But recently, the cultural position on the Christian view has shifted. So the Christians are now Likely to be viewed not as more moral but as less moral, that our position is actually harmful, that our position is actually oppressive. That's interesting. And I want to take a moment to try to understand how we got there and why our culture views us that way. Because the Christian approach to this hasn't changed. My granddad's name was Chester Phillips, he was a pastor. And when he taught on the Christian approach to sex, he would have taught this marriage with faithfulness or total abstinence. We haven't thrown a curveball in here. We've clarified a thing, but we hadn't hadn't changed our position. But the culture has shifted around us so that their view on our position has changed, and that's interesting. We need to figure it out. First, I want to explain one quick aspect of where this is, and then we're going to have to spend a little more time on another one. The first one is this we've bought into the idea of the pursuit of happiness. And honestly, we're kind of built that way as humans. And God actually designs us to have ultimate happiness in Him. And He assumes that we're going to pursue things that are good for us and things that we see as valuable. This is one of the reasons why He'll tell us to to pursue treasure in heaven rather than treasure here. It's not that He says treasure is bad. He says to get your priorities straight, understand where you'll have the most joy, the most delight. So we've got this idea of pursuit of happiness, but here's the problem. When we use the word happiness we often mean two separate things. There's happiness as in joy, as in contentment, as in everything is good and I don't need anything else. And there's happiness as in pleasure, which is this is really good, I want some more. And if you, in the book, uh, The Hacking of the American Mind, there's a pediatric endocrinologist who wrote the book. And this pediatric endocrinologist argues that we have subtly in the U.S. swapped out the word happiness for the word pleasure. We've just taken happiness and filled it with the word pleasure. And he says, the reason that is, is that pleasure is controllable and sellable. Uh, We're consumers. We're designed to be consumers. That's what America runs off of, you buying things. And it runs off of you buying more shoes than you have feet. Like, we, we're designed to own too much stuff. As an American consumer, the, the culture around us doesn't want you to say, I'm happy and I don't want any more. I'm at peace. Also, just so you know, that version of joy, happiness, is harder to attain. It's less controllable by you. I want to feel content. is way harder target to hit versus the pleasure button. Y'all, sugar caffeine, caffeine with sugar in it, (laughs) we know how to press this button. And that's our approach to sexuality is just pleasure, not contentment, stability, enjoyment, joy. We just know how to press the pleasure button. And so we've been sold on happiness as a pursuit, pleasure as the replacement for that, because that's the one that's controllable and sellable, and sex as one of the primary ways to accomplish that. And that's where we are culturally. That's what pornography is. That's what uh, hookup culture is. It's the ability to go after pleasure because pleasure is in some ways controllable, attainable, sellable, achievable. And we hope that if I mash the pleasure button enough, I'll get the contentment. But our skyrocketing addiction and depression shows us that just mashing the pleasure button doesn't make us content. All right. We need to understand that's going on in our culture. But the next thing we need to understand, and the reason why, because that was already happening, the reason why our culture has shifted its view on our view is because of this. I want to read this quote to try to help you understand kind of where we are. This is from uh, Carl Truman in Strange New World, and he does a really good job of trying to articulate this, but he says this, Indeed, it can seem as if things that almost everybody believed as unquestioned orthodoxy, meaning truth, reality, the day before yesterday, that marriage is between one man and one woman, for example. He says things that we used to believe that we were all on the same page with. We were all, he calls it the day before yesterday, but I'll give you an example. You know how political positions shift depending on what everybody thinks? Um, If you didn't know that, there you go. There you go. When Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, that was his official position, that marriage was between one man and one woman. that's not to take a shot at Barack Obama, it's try to help you understand how quickly we've shifted our position on this. That that idea, for example, are now regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe. He goes on to say, when I was young, religious people were often regarded as foolish or hypocritical by the wider culture. But I do not recall any widespread belief that they were, as a class, dangerous, hate-filled bigots who represented a threat to civil order. Used to be viewed as more moral, now are being viewed as less moral. Why? And the reason why is this. We are currently in in what uh, some social scientists and philosophers would call the age of authenticity or the age of expressive individualism. What started with Rene Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am, uh, placing existence inside of us. And then Rousseau, who took that and ran with it, Rousseau at one point says, I'm gonna do something that's never been heard of. I'm gonna do something that'll shock the world. I'm gonna write a story, but I'm just gonna talk about what's going on inside of me. Is that shocking to us? No. That's a a diary, man. Like that's just, that's that's the way we think about the world is that I'm the main character and what's going on inside of me is primary. And it wasn't something that was new. Uh, St. Augustine had already done it. Christians believe that you have an inner man. We're not against this idea. But that the seat of reality exists inside of you is new. But what we've done is we've said that the primary thing that matters is who you are on the inside So we say things like, you have to be true to yourself. You need to just believe in yourself. We talk about, you can't argue with someone's lived experience. If they've actually experienced it, you can't tell them they're wrong. We say things like, this is my story, this is my truth, because it's seated in us. There's a Canadian uh, philosopher, his name is Charles Taylor, and I thought he put it well. He says this, Expressive individualism believes each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And it believes that it is important to find and live out one's own, and that's what he's talking about, one's own way to, to live out your humanity, as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside, by society, or the previous generation, or religious or political authority. I give you the plot to most of the movies you've watched in the last 30 years. That's the books we read, that's the movies we watch, that's what we believe, is that You have to figure out what's going on in you, and you have to express it. You have to impose yourself on the rest of the world and that anybody who tells you you're wrong is the enemy. You see, what we've become to believe, and you can just leave that out there, what we've come to believe is this. We can't really know right or wrong. We can't really know things about God. We can't really know things about eternity. We can't really know any of those things objectively. All we really know is who we are and what we want and what's going on inside of us. And since we can't really know things outside of us, but we can know what's inside of us, then we might not have right and wrong, but what we can have is power and oppression. What we can have is someone else who imposes their will on yours and anyone who imposes their will on yours is oppressive and abusive and harmful. Anybody who tells you that you can't be the you that you want to be is oppressive and abusive and harmful. And the church has been the bad guys from Footloose onward probably before that that's just the one i know about because that's what, that's what the church does is it comes in and says no there's actually something wrong inside of you and you need some objective reality to guide you to change you you need to submit your will to something outside of you but that's not the stories we tell that's not the advice we give it sounds weird to us to give the, exa- the to say the opposite like if you were coaching someone up and you said look don't be yourself yourself is bad So stop it. You go out there and you be what your parents expect you to be. High five. (laughs) Don't be yourself. Don't follow your dreams. Your country needs you. Submit to the will of your country. Don't be yourself. Don't find out what's true to you and express it. Do not sing a song into a well. Look at me. Do not sing. You do what your ancestors want from you. You do what your religion tells you to do. That sounds like a monologue of the bad guy. That's what we've been trained in. Now, Christianity believes that you have an inner self. And Christianity believes that your inner self, you have value and dignity and worth, that you are an individual, You're not a cog in a machine, that you exist individually and personally. The Christianity agrees with those things. But then Christianity steps in and says, but there's something wildly broken and wrong and sinful in your heart, and you cannot trust yourself, which puts us completely sideways with our culture. And once you take our culture's approach to pursuit of pleasure and sex, and our culture's approach to individuality and self-expression. And for lack of a better word, marry those things together. We have what we have now, which is the church is oppressive and abusive. I'm going to read this. This is Carl Truman talking about that coming together. He says this, in short, the sexual revolution does not simply represent a growth in the routine transgression of traditional sexual codes or even a modest exp- expansion of the boundaries of what is and is not acceptable sexual behavior. Not at all. Rather, it is the repudiation of the very idea of such codes in their entirety. So what, what he's saying is this. The sexual revolution wasn't saying, hey, we've made the line too too rigid, too too narrow on what good sex is, and we need to move it out. We need to be able to talk about it a little more. We need to be able to change the boundaries. What he says the sexual revolution is, is any line drawn is bad. we got to get rid of the lines. And we currently really only have like one, two cultural lines left. Pedophilia and bestiality. And we're wavering on both of these. And you're actually going to start hearing the arguments for why those are bad, not based in they are morally repugnant and intrinsically wicked. Sins against your dignity as a human. It's not what you're going to hear. We're going to start hearing more arguments about the problem is consent because we only understand how to talk about power and oppression, and it has to do with individual expression. And so the issue is not that these are bad on their own, but how are you going to define consent? Okay, he keeps going. More than that, it has come in certain areas, such as that of homosexuality and transgenderism, to require... The positive repudiation of traditional sexual mores. Okay, so not just we got to get rid of them. We actually now have to announce that any of those lines were actually evil. They were bad. They were oppressive. That's what positive repudiation means. It's come to, we have to do that to the point where belief in or maintenance of such views, trying to keep the line, has come to be seen as ridiculous and even a sign of serious mental or moral deficiency. The church is oppressive and less moral. he says, and to understand this, how we got here, we need to see the sexual revolution as a particularly sharp manifestation of the characteristics of expressive individualism. If the individual's inner identity is defined by sexual desire, then he or she must be allowed to act out on that desire in order to be an authentic person. So when the church says, we think you're wrong." this desire is bad. The church is articulating, we see you as separate from your sexual desires. But our culture no longer does that. Our culture says sexual desire is identity. And even when we talk about it, one of the reasons you feel uncomfortable is you've been coached by our culture in how to think about this. And the younger you are, the more coaching you've received. This is why people who are older than you can say things that make you go, ooh, you can't say that. This is why if you go back and watch old episodes of sitcoms, you'll go, ooh, you can't say that. And they weren't, they're not that old. But you'll be going, mm-hmm, and you realize, oh, I've been trained. For example, if I said there are Moe's people and there are Chipotle people, and Chipotle people are wrong. You would, first of all, probably agree with me. <laughs> who wants to pay for chips? I don't I didn't get it. But you would not hear it the way that you would hear there are straight people and gay people and gay people are wrong. Because Mose and Chipotle is a thing that you desire. It's not who you are. Do you see how we've shifted to Identity. And Christianity says, no, 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 no. Who you are is an image bearer made in the image of God. Who you are has desires. And who you are needs Jesus. And we love you enough to wherever your desires are crossway with Jesus to say, oh, please come to Jesus. And not because he hates you. And not because we think we're better than you. But because we think that what you're chasing is harmful and that Jesus is better. But that's not the language our culture is speaking. And so we come across and are seen as oppressive and abusive because it's a personal attack. You are wrong at the core of who you are. And anybody who's out there saying you are wrong is equivalent to a racist, is equivalent to someone who is saying just by the nature of how you exist, you are wrong. And it's seen as wickedness. And we're right about racism. Culturally, and we're wrong about this. So, because of this and this, we are more sexually liberated than we've ever been in this country. You are more free to pursue sex, to pursue pleasure, and we're told that if you can freely, nobody's going to put any restraints on you, and if you can freely pursue pleasure, you'll be happy. That's what we've been sold on. you got to get your parents to not... Tell you what to do. You got to get society to not tell you what to do. You got to get religion to not tell you what to do. If you can have all of those things, you'll be happy. Is our culture happy? Has it worked? We're told that pornography, for a long time, is just a normal thing. It's a social good. It'll reduce people who would otherwise commit sexual assaults. It, um, it's a normal craving. It's in the privacy of your home, like we've been told all these things. This is fine, this won't hurt us, it's good, it's a desire, it's a it's like an appetite. You can just, you know, you get hungry, you eat. This is this is fine for us. But has pornography been a public good for us? We have an increased amount of addiction, we have an increased amount of um, abuse. um, addiction and depression. We have an increased amount of young men who are now having to seek medication because they no longer function properly sexually because of their pornography addictions. It's increased depression. It's increased uh, social anxiety because it's a very bad representation of how men and women should interact. It's increased the objectification of people, it's increased the commodification of people, the the buying and selling of people. We have hookup culture, which is just find as many people to sleep with, and that's a that's a route to to joy. Is it? Has it been? Has this been a good for us? We have stories now of people who are using apps to to sleep around and they've met somebody, they sleep with them and they're in the bed with them and open the app back up because it doesn't lead to satisfaction. We were told that if we had the pill and if we had contraceptives and we had abortion, we could help cut down on the number of children that are born out of wedlock. And the reason why we want to cut down on the number of children who are born outside of of a married couple is because all of their statistics are bad, they're worse. You can, you can uh, succeed from that position, but your chances for poverty, for violence, for abuse, being abusive and being abused, all increase. We were told though, if we had the pill, if we had free sex, if we could just get it to where it wasn't, we would fix these problems. We now have the highest rate of children born out of, outside of wedlock in the U.S. we've ever had. It's, nearing, uh, it's 40%, so it's almost half of all children born are born into a situation that's worse for them. We have sexual assault and rape, which we've always had. The world has had that forever, but it's on the rise. And we're told, culturally, that what we need... Is more. We need more freedom. We need to get rid of where we're... People are still saying things like, we got to get to where we can talk about sex without it being taboo. Is that our problem? That we don't talk about sex enough? We're not free enough with how we talk about it? Every single show we've watched, every single movie you've watched, every single, everything you've participated in has sold you on the idea that, that sex is free and easy and simple, and if you could just have more of it, you'd be happy. And we're told we need more, that this is freedom and this is satisfaction. And I think we ought to look around and say, if this is freedom and this is satisfaction, we don't want it. And I think we ought to look and say, thankfully, that the Bible looks at this and says, this is not freedom or satisfaction. This is called idolatry and slavery. Those are the words the Bible is going to put to this. So go to Romans 1, because God loves us. He helps tell us that things are bad for us. I love my children which means that I often stand between the pleasure button and shoo them towards joy. My kids are convinced if they only ate candy and didn't have a bedtime their life would be magical. They're convinced that they could speak to their parents however they wanted to. Their life would have more freedom. They're convinced that if they had to go to school and weren't forced to brush their teeth, life would be good. And I'm well aware that all of those things will mash the pleasure button and will never, ever head them towards joy. And God stands in between us and our twisted desires in his infinite wisdom and love and says, no, 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 that'll mash the pleasure button, but it'll never, ever head you towards joy. Romans 1. We read some of this earlier. We read all of this earlier. We're going to pick up in verse 21. This is talking about humanity. It's talking about what all creatures under the earth have done and how this has worked out. It says, for although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I want you to understand, one of the things that Christians believe is that we have foolish hearts. You have lied to you more than anyone else has. You have caused you more problems than anyone else has. You have caused yourself a problem and then lied to yourself about it. We have foolish hearts. It says their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So rather than submitting to God, worshiping God, delighting in God, we said, no, we want something else and we swap it out. That's idolatry. The idea that I'll be the person who decides what's right, I'll be the person who's in charge, is not new. It's actually quite old. That's the thing we did in the Garden of Eden. That's Genesis chapter 3. That's where they say, no, we'll choose right and wrong. We'll be in charge of good and evil. Thank you very much. We'll decide. So our culture's saying, hey, you're the final arbiter on the right and wrong, good and evil. It's like, didn't a snake tell us that a long time ago? But that's where we are. We exchange God for something else. And sometimes this shows up in straight up the way we think of idolatry, a totem pole, bird, something that you're lighting incense to. But also, we've replaced it for images resembling mortal man. My own intelligence, my own reason, my own inner man, and also physical bodies of other people. And it says, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves and y'all our approach to sexual sin is a dishonoring of our bodies. And that's what he's talking about. He's going to go further and say more about sexual sin. He also says that he gave him up to all kinds of sin, but that's what happens. When we reject God, often he'll say, "You can have what? You have it." And it's not good for us. It's actually his wrath on us to give us what we want at times. It says because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You are worshiping something and you are serving something. You are a slave to something. This is how humanity works. You have something that you set out in front of you and say, this is good. This is desirable. This is the right outcome. This is who I want to be. This is how I think, want things to work. That's worship. That's this. This is what is most wonderful and delightful in the world. And then your track to get it and enjoy it is your service or slavery. So that Peter's going to say things like, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Or later in Romans, in chapter 6, he's going to say, you're a slave to the one whom you obey. He says it's either God or it's to sin which leads to death. And culturally, we are told If you can think about yourself and you can think about sex in these ways, you'll have freedom. You'll have joy. You'll have delight. This is our God. Come, let us worship and bow down. And we have not been blessed by our cultural approach to sex. You have not been blessed by our cultural approach to sex. It has not been good in your life or added to your joy. For many of us, most of us, we were introduced to sex way too early. It ruled in our imagination way too early. Our introduction to sex, if it was through pornography, completely twisted for us what it is supposed to be because rather than being something that is participatory and covenantal and enjoyable between two people, it became voyeuristic and you were separated from it. It became a commodity. It became only about pleasure and nothing about covenant or sacrifice or the giving of yourself. It became only about self-service rather than service and kindness and graciousness and generosity and sacrifice and belonging. If we went from relationship to relationship, if you're currently going from relationship to relationship, sexual relationship to sexual relationship, or not even a relationship, just sex to sex. If you're currently looking at pornography daily, it might hit the pleasure button but it is not added to to contentment, to rest, to peace. It is not added to your joy. It's one of the reasons it's so confusing because you've potentially been convinced that it would. So maybe you're not doing it right, or maybe you need more, or maybe it's gotta be different, or maybe you've gotta find the next mm, approach to it that, that makes you send out more dopamine maybe next time but it will not satisfy more and more when we do premarital counseling or when we do marriage counseling we are not dealing with people who have only had sexual relationships with each other and their previous sexual relationships have not added to their joy It has not added to contentment. It has not added to delight. It has not added to uh, the picture of what God had for us. Our objectification of each other and buying and selling of one another has only added to the brokenness around us. If sex and individuality are our God, we need a new one. Because this one has not blessed us. This one demands more worship, more sacrifice, more service, always promising to at some point finally satisfy, satisfying us, saving us, fixing us, and it will not ever deliver. And by God's grace, we will see that sooner rather than later. Jesus says in John chapter 8, Jesus answers them and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And he's playing on a concept they understand here. Slaves don't inherit. The end of the line for a slave is not inheritance, rest, and delight. That road leads to more slavery. But the son... Remains forever. And then he shifts and he starts talking about himself. And he says, so if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you want freedom? Do you want satisfaction? Do you want joy? Do you want to learn how to quit just trying to chase after pleasure and find contentment and delight that lasts? Not only lasts for this little life as we walk this out, but lasts for an eternity because it has been purchased for us, not by us, but by him. Then you need the sun to set you free. You need Jesus to pay your debt, to rescue you, to forgive you, and to make you his forever. One of the reasons we can say that we know with definitive clarity that God loves us when he stands between us and pleasure is because he sent his son to die on a cross for us. That he came to suffer so that he might pay our debt and set us free. There's a beautiful story in Luke chapter 11. And Luke tells us that Jesus is in the house of a religious leader. And a prostitute comes. She falls on the ground and she begins to weep. She begins to weep on Jesus' feet. You ever had really dusty, sandy, dirty feet and put a little drop of water? You know that little line that runs through them? That's what his feet look like. But more lines, more lines, more lines. I don't know if you've ever just wept and you've cried to where it's just dripping. dripping. She's just weeping on his feet, and then she starts using her hair to clean his feet because there's so many tears. She had been chewed up and spit out by her culture's approach to sex. She had been run ragged, she had been wiped out. She had approached something that was supposed to be good for them, and it was horrific. And, and the religious leader thinks to himself, If Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was and he wouldn't let her touch him. We're looking in the pages of our Bible and we know that he's not only a prophet, but he's the son of God. And you're struck at that moment. Oh, he knows exactly what kind of woman this is. And he welcomes her and he forgives her and he delights that she would come to him. And in this room right now, we may have some significant sexual brokenness because you have been poorly trained by our culture about what satisfaction and delight look like. And I want you to know that you can fall on your face at Jesus and he welcomes you. He does not hesitate. He wraps you up and says, it's for you that I died. It's for you that I came, that I might cover your shame, that I might clothe you in righteousness, that you might shine forever with me. And all of this can be taken away. So do not hesitate, do not feel dirty, do not feel ashamed, but run headlong to Christ and to his redemption. And may we be a people who begin to understand what our culture's training us in so that we might speak well to them and so that we might speak well to our hearts to know that we need Jesus to set us free. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we praise you. And our hearts lie to us and deceive us and lead us astray. And, Lord, we're tired. We're tired of biting the hook and being reeled in and being promised satisfaction and being promised fulfillment and being promised that if we just had this, we'd be happy and it always falling short. And, Lord, we're hurt. We've pursued sexual sin or we've been actively harmed by the sexual sin of others. We're in this room today and we've been marred. We feel bruised and abused. We feel like we've dirtied ourselves and been dirtied by others. And Lord, we praise your grace that Jesus shed his blood that we might be clothed in righteousness. By the power of your spirit, by the working of the cross, may you be at work right now for every person here who is holding on to sin, that they might repent, that they might weep at your feet and be restored that they might come humbly, that they might be lifted up, and that we might leave here with new worship and new service in rejection of a false God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matt's going to come up. As a church, we're going to sing. He's going to take a moment to play while we reflect. We're going to take communion. And communion is a celebration that Jesus came and that his body was broken and that his blood was shed and that he was made to suffer on our behalf and to cover us through his work. And so I'd like for you to take a moment that before you take communion, before you come to the feet of Jesus, that you would take a moment to repent, that you would take a moment to praise him for his sacrifice for you, for his covering of you. Some of you right now have felt shame creeping up on you. And I want you to know that if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no guilt because he has paid for it. You are made holy and righteous and new. If you've trusted in Jesus, if you've repented, you don't have to dredge all this back up. You get to walk free. But if you've never brought it to him, come surrender so that you might be made new. Communion is for Christians, for those who place their faith in Jesus. If you have not trusted in him, we'd ask for you to, to not partake in it, but we would ask you to come to Christ. But if you place your faith in him today, you can walk over and take communion and celebrate that he died for you, that you might be made. So take a moment where we are and pray, repent, and then delight in the salvation of Christ.